0: Okay, so today's case is a little different. Unlike the ones I've covered so far, it's still open and active. So there are details that I don't have access to, for good reason. But before I dive into the ins and outs of what we do know and do not know, I want to share a sentiment that Phoenix's mother, Goldia Colden, has made before. Phoenix, if you're out there and listening, your family misses you. If there's something that has happened that you think needs forgiving, don't worry. They forgive you. They love you. They just want you home. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParkCast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear, and the impact their absences have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a 23-year-old woman who disappeared from Spanish Lake Missouri in December 2011. Ten years later, we still don't know if she left because she wanted to, or if she became the victim of a terrible crime. Her name is Phoenix Colden. New season out on Spotify soon. When something as painful as a disappearance happens, it's natural to want to find something or someone to blame. But when it comes to Phoenix Colden's story, it's hard to know where to start or who to believe. It's the 90s, and Phoenix is growing up in Spanish Lake, Missouri, a predominantly working class town outside of St. Louis. She's an only child. And her parents, Goldia and Lawrence, are fiercely loving and fiercely protective. They establish clear rules for their house. Rules like, God first, then family. Sit up straight. Don't be loud or vulgar. Be neat, discreet, ladylike. And when she comes of age, no sex until marriage. By sixth grade, Goldia starts homeschooling Phoenix. As a mother and educator, she sets high expectations for her daughter. And by all accounts, Phoenix works hard to meet them. She learns piano, guitar, and the violin, makes the honor roll, becomes a regional fencing champion, plays in her church's handbell choir. In short, she's busy, but in a good way. Being homeschooled, extracurriculars are the way for Phoenix to meet new people and make friends and Goldia likes to be personally introduced to all of them. That way, she can give her stamp of approval. She's wary of her daughter hanging around certain people, especially the kids who live in the neighborhood. Even though, by high school, that includes Phoenix's best friend, Akira Hogan. Akira lives just down the road, but when she and Phoenix hang out, Akira says that Goldia makes them stay on the Colden's porch. That way, she can see and hear everything her daughter's up to. Goldie is aware that others may consider her strict, even controlling, but she sees things differently. In her eyes, she's just being a good mother. As she says, I know what my job is, and that's to keep my child safe. That's why God entrusted her to me, to us, to protect her. But no parent can be there to protect their child at all times. In 2007, Phoenix starts college at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. She moves into her own apartment, right near campus. It's her first real taste of independence. And it's short-lived. After a few years, Goldia and Lawrence ask their daughter to move back home. They're struggling to help with Phoenix's rent. And at the end of the day, the apartment isn't necessary. They live close enough for Phoenix to commute. So in May 2011, Phoenix moves back to her childhood home, and she stays there for the next seven months. And from what I can gather, at least from Goldia's perspective, nothing of note happens until it's 11 a.m. on December 18, 2011, and Phoenix is driving to church with Goldia. Goldia and Lawrence's car has been in the shop recently, so they've been relying on their daughter for transportation. Phoenix doesn't sit with her mother during Mass, this is a recent development. Every Sunday, Phoenix has been inching further and further away. Until today, she sits in an entirely different pew, two rows behind her mother. Goldia says she doesn't quite understand why. After the service ends, Phoenix and Goldia drive straight home, arriving sometime before 2 p.m. Shortly after, Phoenix goes outside. She plays some basketball in the driveway, takes a phone call in the car, normal behavior. Then, around 3.05pm, the Colton see their daughter's black 1998 Chevy Blazer SUV back out of the driveway and pull away. She's not dressed for anything in particular. She's wearing tennis shoes, a dark hoodie, and gray sweatpants with her school's initials running down one leg. Lawrence Colden assumes his daughter is going to the store or maybe to a friend's house, but Phoenix doesn't say. She also doesn't say goodbye or take any notable possessions with her. After she leaves, all documentation of Phoenix Colden's whereabouts ends. She stops posting on social media. She doesn't withdraw any money or use any credit cards. There are no records of any outgoing or incoming calls to her cell phone nothing. Six hours pass, and Phoenix hasn't come home. Around midnight, Goldia tells Lawrence that something's wrong. Goldia doesn't like her daughter staying out past 1am, so it's strange that Phoenix hasn't called or texted. She always does. Morning arrives on December 12, 2011, and Phoenix still isn't home. According to Goldia, Phoenix has never stayed away all night. So she places a call to police to file a missing persons report. But it doesn't go the way she hopes. When the officer on the other end of the line learns that Phoenix is 23 years old, the conversation takes a turn. He tells Goldia, Phoenix is an adult. She doesn't have to come home or answer to anyone. It's like a slap in the face for Goldia. She asks the officer if he was raised by wolves and re-explains the severity of the situation, how out of character this is for Phoenix. But according to Goldia, the officer doesn't care. He's willing to run Phoenix's license plates to see if her car was stolen, but beyond that, there's nothing he can do. Goldia waits on hold as he runs the test, but when he gets back on the line, he says nothing popped up there wasn't a match. Goldia hangs up, frustrated. Goldia eventually calls back and speaks to someone else. She complains about her previous interaction, and eventually, a missing persons report does get filed. I just want to say, the moment someone is not where they're supposed to be, whether that's work, school, or just not returning home, like in Phoenix's case, you can report them missing. If the first officer doesn't take the report, just like we saw in this instance, try again. I don't know how long that process actually takes for the Coldens, but Goldia and Lawrence spend the next two weeks hanging homemade missing person flyers around town. They contact local hospitals to see if anyone has seen Phoenix. They're convinced something is wrong. If their daughter didn't come home, something bad must have happened to her. The holidays come and go without any news or evidence at the end of december phoenix's christmas presents are still under the tree in the colden's foyer wrapped in bows waiting for her return and the world brings in a new year before anyone realizes that phoenix's car was found weeks earlier abandoned in a different state as a reminder Phoenix backed out of her driveway around 3.05 p.m. on December 18, 2011. Less than two and a half hours later, at 5:27 p.m., Officer Kendall Perry received a dispatch call about an abandoned vehicle. It had been left near 9th Street and St. Clair Avenue in East St. Louis, Illinois, about a 30-minute drive from the Colden's home in Spanish Lake, Missouri. Perry arrives at the scene within 10 minutes. He sees a black 1998 Chevy Blazer sitting in a traffic lane, unoccupied, about a stone's throw away from Interstate 70. Perry assumes the driver ran out of gas. It wouldn't be unusual for the area. According to his account, he finds the doors shut and the lights off and the keys aren't in the ignition. There are some miscellaneous belongings scattered about the car but nothing he considers to be of note. There's no blood and no signs of a struggle. Based on the license plates, Officer Perry knows the car is from out of state, but when he checks to see if it was stolen, he doesn't get a match in the system. So Phoenix's car gets impounded, and it's later entered into a national database as an abandoned vehicle. No one makes the connection to Phoenix's case until January 1st, 2012. 20 days later. Now, a lot of attention has been paid to why the police didn't put two and two together, and rightfully so. According to the investigators, Phoenix's car slipped through some bureaucratic cracks. It was found in another jurisdiction, in another state, so a general lack of communication prevented them from making the connection sooner. Phoenix's car was also reported abandoned, not stolen, Stolen cars are more often connected with other crimes. So, one, police update the database more frequently, and two, they access them more often. If Phoenix's car had been reported stolen, the officer who spoke to Goldia the day after Phoenix disappeared almost certainly would have made the connection. But according to Goldia, all of that is really just excuses. She claims the car was registered in her name, not Phoenix's. And yet, nobody thought to call her and tell her that her car was being impounded. If they had, Goldia would have immediately known that something was wrong. And while Officer Kendall claims he didn't find anything significant in the car, Goldia says that's not true either. Phoenix's glasses, purse, and driver's license were all apparently in the car. Meaning, officials had plenty of evidence and opportunity to make the connection. They just didn't and the delay is a huge blow to the case. So much crucial time has been lost. In early January, when Phoenix's friends and family learn where her car was found, they're shocked. This area of East St. Louis has a notoriously high rate of violent crime. Interstate 70, the closest highway, has been called the sex trafficking superhighway of the world one friend later comments that he doesn't know why she would be going to East St. Louis unless it was to get drugs. But that's not Phoenix, he says. Ultimately, the St. Louis County Police Department sends a crime scene unit to process Phoenix's car. According to Officer Benjamin Granda, they run full forensics and find no indication that a robbery or theft took place the only fingerprints found in the car belong to Phoenix and her parents. Now, up until this point, the Coldens have had no luck getting media coverage of Phoenix's disappearance. But a journalist and local news anchor at Fox 2 named Shondrea Thomas eventually reports the case. And here's where the story really starts to get murky. According to Shondrea, she reports the facts of Phoenix's case as they're given to her. She's told police found Phoenix's car with the driver's door wide open, the keys in the ignition, and the car still running. So that's the story that airs on local news. Eventually, the details get republished so many times that they become the story, the only story. Years later, Chandrea Thomas interviews Officer Kendall Perry, the guy who found Phoenix's car, for an oxygen special on the disappearance it's the first time she hears his version of events. That the car was turned off, all the doors were shut, and nothing seemed all that unusual. is stunned. As the only eyewitness on the scene, Perry's account has to be the most accurate. As far as I can tell, he has no motivation to lie. But to this day, most articles about Phoenix's case still say that her SUV was found running with the driver's door open and keys in the ignition. Now, it's hard to say where those facts came from. Chandrea Thomas believes the most likely explanation is, somewhere along the line, someone exaggerated the facts, thinking the media would be more likely to cover Phoenix's case if it really seemed like foul play. And if that is the case, maybe they were right. According to Shondrea, she had to fight to get Phoenix airtime, even with the more salacious details she originally reported. Why? Well, according to Goldia Colden, Phoenix's face would have been all over the national news. If only she was a white girl with blonde hair and blue eyes, but she isn't, she's black. Now there's some serious truth behind Goldia's statement. Statistically, white women who go missing receive such a disproportionate amount of media coverage that a study in the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology has named the phenomenon Missing White Woman Syndrome. And while media coverage can help solve crimes, Missing White Woman Syndrome has a dark side. According to FBI statistics, despite making up only about 13% of the U.S. population, 27.2% 27.2% of all adults and 36.8% of all children reported missing in America are Black. And yet, their stories are far less likely to be told at all, let alone on a national scale. According to the nonprofit Black and Missing, the uneven distribution is, at least in part, due to biases and lack of diversity in most mainstream newsrooms which is all to say we can and need to do better. Ultimately, the limited coverage Phoenix's case does receive fuels countless theories about what might have happened to her. The top three theories are, one, she was abducted into sex trafficking, two, homicide, or three, she ran away. According to the St. Louis Police Department, they still haven't ruled out any of these possibilities. And this is simply because there are still too many unknowns. In 2012, when investigators start digging into Phoenix's life, they're confronted with a laundry list of questions that we still don't have the answers to. Like, if her parents paid for her cell phone, why did she have a burner phone? In January, 2012, Weeks after Phoenix Colden's disappearance, investigators finally begin questioning Phoenix Colden's closest friends and examining her phone records. They find out Phoenix had a boyfriend. Most sources refer to him as Michael B. On December 17, 2011, the day before she disappears, Phoenix makes a call to Michael B that lasts for 116 minutes. The next day, the same day she disappears, Phoenix makes 3 calls. The first at 9:38 a.m. to a family friend named Rosie. Immediately after hanging up, she calls Michael B again. The call lasts for approximately 6 minutes. 4 hours later, at 1:46 p.m., they speak again. This time it's short, 1 minute or less. As far as I know, it's the last known communication that Phoenix has with anyone. But what's so unusual about all of these conversations is, Goldia and Lawrence had no idea Phoenix even had a boyfriend. And she didn't just have a boyfriend in the casual sense. Phoenix and Michael B. dated for at least four years. They lived together before Phoenix moved back in with her parents in the same apartment Goldia and Lawrence helped pay for. According to Phoenix's friends, she kept Michael B. a secret because she assumed her parents wouldn't have approved. Which, given what little I know about her upbringing, makes sense. But Phoenix had more than just a secret boyfriend. She had a secret cell phone as well. One that wasn't attached to her parents' plan. Again, I don't know when or how investigators found it, But after being questioned, many of Phoenix's friends admit that they knew about the phone. They tell investigators that they had always assumed Phoenix had it so she could discreetly speak with Michael B without her parents knowing. But that's not true. Based on Phoenix's phone records, she exclusively called Michael B from the phone attached to Goldia and Lawrence's plan. Investigators don't have any clue why Phoenix needed a second phone. Until, Akira Hogan, Phoenix's best friend, tells officials that Michael B. wasn't the only man Phoenix was seeing. She doesn't know too much about the second guy, but Akira says his name was also Michael. I'll call him Mike for clarity. Mike apparently went to school with Phoenix. He worked at a nearby T-Mobile store, and he probably set Phoenix up with the second phone. Akira also tells investigators that she noticed a shift in Phoenix's demeanor after Phoenix moved back in with her parents in May. She apparently became more irritable, more down. Akira blamed most of it on the rising tension between Phoenix and her mother. She says they kept getting into fights. But that wasn't the whole story. According to Akira, in addition to being moody, Phoenix became paranoid before she went missing. Every so often, out of the blue, Phoenix would apparently tell Akira that she thought she was being followed. By who or what, she refused to say. Apparently, Phoenix also kept alluding to something bad that happened to her recently. Once again, she didn't say what. But as a result of Phoenix's behavior, Akira and Phoenix's friendship started to fracture. Tensions came to a head shortly before Phoenix went missing. This is what Akira tells investigators. It's December 2011, one week before Phoenix's disappearance. Akira and Phoenix are out on Akira's front lawn. For some reason, Phoenix accuses Akira of badmouthing her behind her back. According to Akira, the allegation comes from nowhere. She tells Phoenix she would never do that to her best friend. This is the start of their fight. But things escalate quickly from here. I don't exactly understand how or why, but at some point, Phoenix mentions being in danger. She pulls a knife from her car and waves it at Akira, threateningly. Before leaving, Phoenix says, I'm gonna pack up my stuff and just go. The next time Akira sees her best friend, it's on a missing person poster. Clearly, when it came to her personal life, Phoenix selectively chose what information she gave out and to whom. Before she disappeared, Phoenix led everyone in her life, including Akira, to believe that she was still enrolled at the University of Missouri. But at some point, investigators learn that she never registered for her fall semester, which leaves Phoenix with a lot of unaccounted for free time in the months leading up to her disappearance. And the two people I think might be able to provide more insight here are the men in her life, Michael B. and Cell Phone Mike, both of whom have been careful to avoid media attention. To be clear, wanting privacy is not necessarily a sign of guilt, but their sides of the story are critically important. Judging by phone records, Michael B. spoke with Phoenix more than any other person in her life, and twice on the day she disappeared. Still, when police questioned Michael B. about the 116 minute phone call from the day before Phoenix disappeared, he reportedly told them he couldn't remember what it was about. Phoenix's father, Lawrence Colden, has called Michael B. a liar and believes he may be hiding something. But according to Officer Benjamin Granda from the St. Louis Police Department, Michael B. was the most cooperative, most upfront person that they talked to in their investigation. He added, I can say with 100% confidence that he in no way, shape or form had anything nefarious to do with Phoenix's disappearance. As for the other Mike, the only information that has been made public about him comes from an ex-girlfriend who now has a restraining order against him after enduring physical and emotional abuse. In the special for Oxygen Network, the girlfriend spoke to Chandrea Thomas and retired deputy police chief Joe Delia. She requested to remain anonymous. For clarity, I'll refer to her as Jane. Jane was dating Mike at the time of Phoenix's disappearance. And around Christmas 2011, she noticed a strange change in his behavior. It's been about a week since Phoenix was last seen and Jane starts to see Mike take an unusual interest in missing persons cases. He's researching them online, following along with the updates. He's paying special attention to a missing girl named Phoenix Colden. When Jane asks him why, he tells her there's nothing to worry about. He's a psychology major. He just finds it all very interesting. But Mike doesn't stop. He keeps researching Phoenix's case. And when Jane confronts him a second time, he admits that Phoenix used to be a customer of his at T-Mobile and that they'd slept together once. Naturally, this upsets Jane, but instead of apologizing for cheating, Mike basically tells her she's overreacting right before asking her, why are you worried about someone who's dead? Which raises an obvious question, How could Mike possibly have known what happened to Phoenix? Of course, he could have just been making an assumption based on how long she had been missing. While filming their oxygen special, Chandrea Thomas and Joe Delia tried to speak to Mike. He denied an interview and asked for a lawyer. Investigators from the St. Louis Police Department have reportedly spoken with him, but I don't know whether they've ruled him out as a suspect. That said... I know they still leave open the possibility that Phoenix is alive. And there's been at least one sighting to suggest she is. In 2014, Kelly Fraunhart is flying back from Las Vegas. It's been three years since her friend Phoenix Colden disappeared. So she's shocked when she looks up and sees a woman standing in the aisle who looks exactly like Phoenix. When Kelly shouts Phoenix's name, the woman turns around and she's the only one to turn around. After making eye contact, the woman offhandedly asks, oh, do I look like someone you know? And Kelly responds like, yes, you look like my friend Phoenix. And then the woman just stops engaging. She's wearing a short jacket and some expensive looking jewelry. She's hanging around with a group of women who all look just like her, young, black, attractive. They're accompanied by two men who look like they're 35 to 40 years old and could be professional football players. They're muscular, tall, and well dressed. After Kelly exits the plane, she races to the nearest airport attendant and tells them that she saw a missing person on her flight. The attendant calls police, who search the entire airport for the woman, but it's already too late. She's gone. Kelly walks away 90% confident the woman was Phoenix Colden. With no way to follow up on the lead, investigators are, once again, left speculating. Elements of Kelly's account can sound like a possible sex trafficking scenario. But without more to go on, and without knowing if it even was Phoenix on the plane, it's all just guesswork. Theories. And before committing to a theory of your own, you should probably hear the one piece of evidence that I think best showcases Phoenix's mental state before she disappeared. In November, 2011, about a month before Phoenix Colden disappears, she records a video of herself talking on her phone in the car. The shot is mostly just her face, Her almond-shaped brown eyes, hair dyed slightly red, piercings running down each ear. She periodically looks out the window, and she definitely looks paranoid. With tears welling in her eyes, she addresses the camera. I don't have access to the full video, so instead of playing it, I'm going to share with you what I consider to be some of the most compelling, and maybe telling, quotes. I probably would have been in a better situation if I would have stuck with how I used to be. I feel so stupid because I let myself go a little bit. I want people to take me seriously. The only person that won't let me down is me. I can't remember a time that I was happy. Last time, I was genuinely happy. I just want to be happy. I just want to start over. I just feel like I can't start the new me over. According to those closest to her, Phoenix never made a habit of recording herself, and many are surprised by the vulnerable, scared young woman who appears in the video. Phoenix apparently never shared that side of herself. For me, certain words really stand out. Namely, I just want to start over. They echo what she tells Akira later on, before they stop speaking. I'm gonna pack up my stuff and just go. Now, the Coldens hired a private investigator named Steve Foster, who worked Phoenix's case on and off for years. Though unwilling to state anything conclusively, he believes the most likely explanation for Phoenix's disappearance is, she ran away. According to Steve, Phoenix had stolen a number of savings bonds from her parents' safe and cashed them. In total, he estimated the bonds were worth approximately $2,500. This is before she ever moved back in with her parents. And here's what's even more interesting. Inside that safe, Phoenix had two different birth certificates. Turns out, Lawrence Colden isn't Phoenix's biological father. Goldia was a single mother prior to meeting Lawrence. So, Phoenix Colden was actually born Phoenix Reeves. Goldia and Lawrence presumably changed Phoenix's last name either when they got married or when Lawrence officially adopted her. And here's why this is important. If Phoenix found the two birth certificates, which Steve says is likely it would have been relatively easy for her to obtain a new social security number, driver's license, and assume a brand new identity as Phoenix Reeves. According to expert analysis, there are four people currently living as Phoenix Reeves in the United States. And believe it or not, one of them only appeared in January, 2012, meaning less than a month after Phoenix first went missing. Prior to January, 2012, there are no records that this Phoenix Reeves ever existed. No associated relatives, no date of birth, no social security, nothing. The only listed identifier was his street address in Anchorage, Alaska. When Joe Delia, the retired deputy police chief who examined Phoenix's case for oxygen, finds this out, he travels to Alaska. He finds a house at the listed address, but when he speaks with an occupant, she tells him that she purchased the property in 2002. She's been living there as the sole owner ever since. She's never rented the house, and she's never spoken to or heard of anyone by the name Phoenix Reeves or Phoenix Golden. It's another dead end. So what's the most likely explanation for Phoenix's disappearance? Did she run away? according to Phoenix's friend and classmate, Leslie Shipman. If she did run, it may not have been the first time. While they were in college, Leslie claims a string of fights caused Phoenix to cut off contact with her parents for months. And her mother did not respond well to being ghosted. Goldia Colden denies that this ever happened. She claims Leslie's narrative is entirely fictionalized calling it a bald-faced lie. She told Shandrea Thomas and Jodelia, we don't have those types of disagreements. If we do, we talk about it, and then it's over with. Even today, Goldia doesn't entertain the idea that Phoenix would ever run away from home. She insists that her daughter's disappearance was the result of foul play, that something bad happened to her. According to Goldia, right before her daughter went missing, Phoenix almost opened up to her about what was going on in her life. She said she just wanted the two of them to go back to how they used to be. I won't pretend to know how things used to be, but what's so difficult about this case is there's plenty of evidence to suggest that Phoenix didn't run away. It would be highly unusual for someone to disappear without taking any of their belongings with them. In order to pull it off, Phoenix would have needed assistance and a lot of it. Not to mention everyone in Phoenix's life, from Akira to Goldia to Lawrence to her pastor. Everyone agrees that if Phoenix did run away, she would have contacted someone by now. And here's where things get complicated because Phoenix running away and something bad happening to her aren't mutually exclusive. Let's revisit some facts. The suggestion that Phoenix might have been sex trafficked was raised after news outlets broke the story about the discovery of her car. They reported it found running in a high crime area next to a highway known for sex trafficking with the door open and keys in the ignition. All details pointed to foul play. But even with what we know now, sex trafficking is still a major possibility Contrary to popular belief, human trafficking doesn't always look like a violent crime. It doesn't always look obvious. Often, abductors are people the victim had a relationship with for a sustained period of time. Traffickers will slowly gain a person's trust before leading them down a path that, eventually, they can't come back from. According to experts, Phoenix fits the profile of someone traffickers would target. A little naive from a religious family. Going through a rocky time at home, it probably wouldn't have taken much to drive a wedge between her and her loved ones, ask her to do something out of her comfort zone, and then when she does it, convince her that her family will never forgive her, that she doesn't deserve love. Eventually, running away might sound like a good option, or even the only option. Judging by her behavior leading up to her disappearance, Phoenix felt like she was in over her head. If the kidnapper was someone Phoenix knew, that could explain why officials didn't find any evidence of a struggle. She might have gone willingly and not even fully grasped what was happening before it was too late. Once she left, her abductors would almost certainly sever all ties to everything and everyone she loved. To them, people are just assets, and human trafficking can be a lucrative industry. Statistics on human trafficking are notoriously unreliable, but that doesn't mean it isn't a problem. Many survivors of trafficking are assumed runaways, and many more are targeted because for one reason or another, they don't have loved ones to look for them. But that's clearly not the case for Phoenix Golden. She has so many people who love her. I can't say what caused her disappearance, but her family has spent their life savings and lost their home in Spanish Lake looking for their daughter, and they still haven't given up hope. Goldia Colden says she has a feeling, deep, deep inside, that her daughter's still alive. So I'll say again, Phoenix, if you're out there and listening, If there's something that has happened that you think needs forgiving, it's forgiven. Know that your family loves you. If you have any information on Phoenix Colden's disappearance, please call St. Louis County Police at 314-889-2341. Next episode... In 1938, one of the world's most important nuclear physicists disappears from fascist Italy without a trace. A year-long search turns up one fact. Wherever Ettore Majorana is, he doesn't want to be found. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. For more information on cases like Phoenix Colden and what you can do to help, please visit the Black and Missing Foundation at BAMFI.org. The Black and Missing Foundation is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to bring awareness to missing persons of color, provide vital resources and tools to missing persons families and friends, and to educate the minority community on personal safety. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney. And is a Spotify original from ParkCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.